If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This is on page 554, if you're using one of the Bibles there in the pew. And today we're going to cover the first 15 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. In the very last episode of a very popular TV show, one of the main characters laments the final act that is near to their show. And he says this, this is the quote that he gives. I wish there was a way to know when you're in the good old days before you've actually left them. If you've reacted with any level of sentiment or emotion to that quote, it's probably because you're able to relate to the desires behind it. It's relatable to you because you know that seasons come and they go. And that one day you too will miss the good old days. There are common cliches that I now hear because I'm a father, a new father, in regards to my daughter growing up. Things like, they grow up so fast. Next thing you know, you'll be walking her down the aisle. Don't blink or you'll miss it. Or, I remember when my little one, and then you you fill in the blank. I am very much aware today that that I will look back on this current season of my life and reminisce with great sentiment. But this is what time does. It comes and it goes and it's always passing us by. The past several weeks, we have been learning through the book of Ecclesiastes about the dangers of pursuing the things of this world. Things like wisdom of this world, pleasure of this world, work to find our satisfaction. And we've been learning how true wisdom, joy, and meaning can only be found in Christ alone. We've learned that the true meaning and enjoyment in this world is given to the one who pleases God. And this is what we specifically learned last week. Today we'll see that our lives are made up of seasons. And that there isn't very much time to enjoy the things of this world that are also passing. So we should turn our attention to the one who will never fade away. Our main point for today is this. God has purposed that the brief season of our lives lead us to fear him. God has purposed that the brief seasons of our lives lead us to fear him. Today we're going to break down our text into just two ways, two points. First, we're going to see the seasons and the brevity of man. And then we're going to see the eternal purposes of God. 
And we'll end both sections at the very end with some general applications for the entirety of the text. Let's consider our first point today. The seasons and brevity of man. Would you look at your Bibles at verse 1? For everything there is a season and a time. A time for every matter under the heaven. In this section, Solomon is is going to provide a poem. We'll see that in verses 2 through 8. And then he's going to provide some commentary to that poem in verses 13 and 14. He begins this section by telling us this simple truth. That everything has an appropriate time. Everything has its season under the heaven. There's a specific time for everything that occurs underneath the sun. This statement is followed by a poem. This poem is a list of 14 pairs that contrast one another, ranging from different experiences common for the common for us in our course of any life. But from these lines, there are some general principles that we can begin to learn. Firstly, we can learn that some of these seasons are completely out of our control and out of our influence. We don't get to determine when we're born. And we don't get to determine when we die. Some of these seasons are a result of things that happen to us, causing us to react or respond to them. Tragedies and accidents are always surprises. It's these surprises that lead us at times to weep and to mourn. But on the other side of the coin, unexpected news like a promotion, maybe like an engagement, can lead us to laugh and to dance. Sometimes our reactions and our responses causes us to think, maybe is is this the best time to keep silent? Or is this the time to speak? Some of these seasons are just a part of mundane life. We work and we plant and we pick up. We cast stones and we gather them. We break down and we build up. These are just tasks that are part of of everyday life. Some of these seasons are positive and some of them are negative. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. There's a time to love. A time to hate. There's a time for war. And a time for peace. But what we are reminded of in these eight verses is that our lives are made up of these different types of seasons. And this is our experience in this life. We typically view this poem from a very positive light. We see the statements of this poem on mugs, we see them on stationaries, we see them on greeting cards, we see people write famous songs about them. But for Solomon, what he sees in this poem is the consistent pattern of mundaneness on display. He sees the complete 
pattern of mundaneness on display throughout life for those who toil and work underneath the sun. Solomon sees that we are born, that we live, that we work, that we love, and then we die. Everything in this world is changing and nothing is lasting. And this is the effect of the curse. Solomon begins to communicate his frustration. We see this in verses 9 and 10. Look at, with, look at it with me. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. In verse 9, Solomon poses a rhetorical question. And it's one that, we, that he's already asked before. What gain has the worker from his toil. We can summarize the answer to the first time that he asked this. Nothing. There is no gain from the worker in all of his toil. But we see that even the second phrase is not the first time he stated these words in verse 10. We see them first appear in chapter 1, verse 13. Solomon finally provides some details, though, on what is the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And he's laid it out in all of verses 2 and 8. All that you see in the poem is exactly the work that God has given the children of man to be busy with. These are the things that God has given us to do. These are the activities that God has divinely ordained that man will fill his time with in this life. And in the following verses, Solomon begins to provide a bit of commentary on these verses, helping us to understand a few things about our own lives. Would you look at your Bibles there at verse 11? He has made everything Beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In his commentary, Solomon tells us, it's God who has made everything beautiful in its time. Or a, a, perhaps a more proper translation, he has made everything appropriate in its time. Since the beginning and creation, God has created all things. And he has seen them to be right and to be good. Solomon tells us that all of the events and activities in our lives are overseen and ordained by the creator himself. Placed at the appropriate time and season in our lives. All of these events and experiences are working themselves out together to, accompl to accomplish a greater purpose that we in our finite limitations are unable to see, nor are we able to understand. And this is what Solomon is telling us in the subsequent verses. Look at what he says. He, God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning 
to the end. Solomon tells us that God has placed eternity in our hearts. In every individual in this room, eternity sits within your heart. We all want to live forever, don't we? That is, that's our typical desire. If you're visiting us today and you, and you wouldn't classify yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ, you, you too would probably agree with that statement. As a whole, humanity, as a society, it's our desire to be forever young. This week, I, I just Googled the word anti-aging. Anti-aging. I just Googled anti-aging. I fell into a hole of different products, uh, different tips on how to stunt our aging process. Apparently, everybody, we need to take sunscreen more seriously. <laughs> but I read, I read a recent article, and maybe, maybe you've seen it. It's really new, in the last couple of weeks, about a 45-year-old tech mongol who spends $2 million a year, and this is a quote from the article, to ensure that parts of his body are degrading at a slower pace than average. $2 million a year. In history, each continent has a representation of a story that talks about the elixir of life. The ever-elusive potion that's supposed to make us live forever. Every continent has its own myth and fable about this product. There is a desire. There's always a desire for more among us. As humans, we desire to live forever. Solomon is telling us that this, that this desire comes because, because God has placed eternity in our hearts. We understand that we are created and made for something more than what this what this world has to offer. Solomon tells us that while we have eternity in our hearts, we also are met with our own limitations, our own finiteness, our own brevity. Solomon's frustration comes by knowing that while there are appropriate times for everything, and God knows of these times and their purposes, we cannot possibly fathom all that God is doing. Are you able to relate to Solomon? Do you find yourself unable to fathom all that God might be doing in your life? Join the club. This is what Solomon is saying. And this truth leads Solomon to the same truth as last week. There is only one proper response to the mundaneness of this brief life. And we see it in verses 12 and 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. There are seasons in our lives. We will be born, we will work, 
we will enjoy the fruits of our labors, we will mourn, we will dance, and inevitably we will die. And Solomon says that because our lives are but mist, because they are but vapors, we should enjoy them for as long as we can. Solomon is telling us, he's teaching us that time, that there's a time that has been allotted to us to live and enjoy what God has given us. And its full purpose can only be known to God. Thankfully, the inspiration of the Spirit, Solomon begins to shed some lights on God's purposes. By summarizing this entire section, what Solomon has helped us to see is what the rest of scriptures continually teach us. We are finite beings. Our lives are indeed but vapors. We are made up of different seasons. We are here today and gone tomorrow. And if we are going to enjoy this life, and if we're going to enjoy this time, we must, we must consider God. We must consider God. Now, what, now that, that Solomon has taught us a bit about what it's like to be a man and to live this life, he turns our attention to the being, to God himself. Look at verses 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him, fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. You know, this section of scripture is so good for us to consider and to reflect it's a, it's a section, this entire passage is a section that clearly helps to show the distinction between the creature and the creator. It's important for us to recognize these distinctions because many times we simply forget. Many times we simply fail to remember that God is God And we are not. Notice, all that God does endures forever. Our God is infinite. This is one of his attributes. He has no beginning and he has no end. He was present when there was no beginning and was present at the beginning and will forever be present. Listen to what the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He is of everlasting to everlasting. 
and all of his attributes and his exercising of them are infinite. This means that his wisdom and his knowledge is infinite, making his ways and his plans and the execution of his will perfect and good. He is always faithful. His power is infinite. He does not grow tired, nor does he grow weak. Always able to carry forth that which he has decreed. His plans will not falter. But consider ourselves this morning. We are not so. We are finite beings. We are created beings. We were formed by the, ma- the hands of the maker. The scriptures tell us. Our time is passing. Here one season and gone the next We increase in our wisdom and our knowledge. Yet we are also growing weaker and weaker with each passing minute. Solomon says about the plans of God, nothing can be added to them nor anything taken from them. God's plans cannot change because God himself cannot change. He is immutable. He is unchanging. Listen to what Job says of the Lord in chapters 23, verse 13. Be he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, this is what the Lord says of himself. For I, the Lord, do not change. He is the same God of yesterday, today, and forever. The God with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. He is the king of ages, immortal, invisible. And the plans of God cannot be thwarted. They cannot be added to. There is nothing that can be taken away. But we are not so. We are changing with each and every passing season. Everything changes about us and around us. We age and mature. We grow strong and then we grow weak. Our styles and our tastes change. Thank the Lord, right? Our desires Our affections, our emotions are constantly changing. Our circumstances and situations always changing. Our plans, even our plans are constantly changing. You know, know, last week I had a full scheduled plan for this past week. My calendar was full. And obviously, none of those plans happened. They were changing We are but seasonal beings, responding and reacting to each passing moment. Why do these things endure forever? Why do the things that God does endure forever? Why why will they not change? Well, simple. 
It's because it's God who is sovereign and in control over all that he does. He exercises his providence over all of creation. How much is our God in control? How much is our God in control? Look at what Solomon says in verse 15. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. He is in complete and utter control. And he is in control over all things. From the smallest molecule and everything in between the cosmos. He governs it all. And everything is outworking so that his eternal purposes are accomplished. Listen to what Pastor H.B. Charles says. God is the first cause and the effective cause and the final cause of all things. He's the source, the sustainer, and significance of all things. He's the source and the force and the course of all things. He's the originator of all things. He perpetuates all things. He terminates all things. He's the foundation of all things, the being of all things, the purpose of all things. This is who our God is. In your particular season, no matter how difficult, no matter how grim it may look, this is why our God can be trusted. Because he is in absolute control. And he will accomplish his purposes. But sometimes we don't like this doctrine. Sometimes we have difficulties with this doctrine. It makes us uncomfortable. And that can occur because we begin to lose sight of the creature-creator distinction. We attempt to place ourselves in a spot that gives us control. Solomon has spent the first 12 verses telling us, teaching us how much we are not in control at all. How we don't choose when we are born or when we die. How he shows us how fragile and brief our lives actually are. That God is the one who has given us his creation, the business of being about these different seasons and experiences. That even the enjoyment of our lives is not in our hands. But that this, that this is a sheer gift from the Lord himself. But why has God done these things? that we have walked through today? Why does he teach us about the brevity of our lives? Why does he help us to see the greatness of our God? He tells us at the end of verse 14, God has done it so that people fear before him. God has done it so that people fear before him. Why is the purpose of understanding 
that our lives are seasonal, that they're brief, that God's the one establishing and governing for all of time. It's so that we might fear him, church. It's so that we might fear him. What does it mean to fear God? You know, we could spend an entire sermon on this one phrase and idea. And I'm so thankful that Ecclesiastes is going to continually teach us what it means to fear God. But if you're visiting today and you're, you're not in Christ, I want you to know you're, you're not united in Christ. You don't, you don't believe in Jesus or you don't see a need for Jesus. I, I want you to know that, that your type of fear of the Lord is different than many in this room who do trust and believe. I want you to know that, that how you fear God is, 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 is going to look different. And we're going to talk about that type of fear a little later. I just want you to know that. But for the Christian that's in the room, sometimes we say that the fear of God is simply a reverence or an awe. This is, this is definitely included. But it's, it's more than this. It's, it's more than this. Do you remember John's response when he sees Christ in all his glory? We're told that he fell as though dead. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth were, do not be afraid. The fear of the Lord includes a proper understanding of the creature-creator distinction. So that we might understand as best as we can the majesty and the glory of God. I found this illustration by by John Piper to be helpful. He describes a mountain climber frantically seeking shelter as a deadly storm approaches. He's terrified until he finds a hole in the cliff that provides him with refuge and with safety. With his illustration in mind, listen to what Piper says. He says, we should let the experience of hope penetrate and transform the experience of fear. In other words, the kind of fear that we should have towards God is whatever is left of fear when we have found a sure hope in the midst of it. The fear of God is what's left, is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. It's the place of refuge, we say. This is amazing. This is terrible. This is incredibly powerful. Oh, the thrill of being here in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by God himself. And so we get an idea of how we feel both hope and fear at the same time. Hope turns fear into a trembling and peaceful wonder. And fear takes everything trivial out of hope and makes it earnest and profound. The terrors of God make the pleasures of his people intense. See, this is the the trembling amazement of the power of God with a profound and earnest wonder of all that he is. This is the fear of the Lord in our hearts. This is what should occur when we understand that our, that our season of life is brief and we compare it to the immense glory of the everlasting God. This is what our eternal hearts long for. Fellowship with God. 
so that we might know him in the fullness of who he is. This is what your heart longs for this morning, whether you know it or not. This is what my heart longs for this morning. It's the fear of the Lord that leads us to wisdom, to live lives with meaning, purpose, and joy. It's the fear of the Lord that moves us to consider the brevity of our lives and to seek to live them in such a way to please God. It's the fear of the Lord that moves us to the truth. God, with every season of our lives, knowing that his eternal purposes will be accomplished. Thankfully, we have the full revelation of God's word. And we know the aspects of his eternal purposes that he has revealed to us. Listen to what Galatians 4 says. But when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And God's perfect, purpose timing and is sovereignly ordained that Christ would come, be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, die on the cross for our sins and resurrect on the third day so that sinners, sinners like you and me might no longer fear our greatest enemy in death but so that we might be given eternal life in the Son, welcomed as sons and daughters. So we begin to live with a different understanding. One shaped by the word of God and heavenly wisdom that it communicates. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. The season of life, whether it be 13 years, 30 years, 99 years, and all that we face in them are but momentary afflictions, church, with a purpose to lead us to fear God, with a purpose to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory that we could never comprehend in this time. I mentioned earlier, if you're, you're visiting and you've not believed the message of the gospel, that your fear of God should be different. It, it, it'll look different because the scriptures teach us that the wages of our sin is death and that the fullness of God's wrath lays upon us. If you do not know Christ today and today you were able to understand in some part that there is a difference between the creation and the creator, that we as Christians, despite our brevity in life, have hope and peace. We're able to, to understand that you, desire, that you desire that for your own life, that hope, that peace. I'd love for you to come and talk to me or one of the pastors after the service. We would love to introduce you to the person of Jesus Christ who makes this possible for all those who would come unto him. But for the rest of us, 
How should we respond? How should we respond? Let me give you three quick ways that we can respond this morning. Number one, number your days. Number your days. Listen to what the psalmist says in chapter 90, verse 12. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is a great verse to memorize. This is a great verse to pray unto the Lord that that he would allow you to remember the brevity of our lives. How does considering the span of our life give us wisdom? How, How does it give us wisdom? Well, because it's wisdom that helps us to discern what season we currently find ourselves in. And it teaches us to live rightly and wisely within it. Wisdom allows for this truth to to permeate our hearts. Our lives are but seasons. They come and they go. And the current season that you're in will pass. It It will certainly pass, whether in this life or to lead you into the next life of eternal glory. It's a momentary joy and a momentary affliction. But it's this wisdom that teaches us to begin to cherish the things that God has gifted us with. It helps us to cherish our spouses. It helps us to cherish our children. It it helps us to cherish the ability to work and the the ability to, to be active. It's what allows us to cherish the seasons and its creation, to enjoy spring and to enjoy fall. The other ones, you know, maybe that's for other people, but for spring, at least for fall. It helps us to enjoy the little things, like the taste of a good plate of food, like the sound of a good orchestra. It's the ability to number our days that allows us to see the value in the things that God has gifted us with. Number two, trust in the eternal purposes of God. Trust in the eternal purposes of God. In whatever season that you find yourself in today, trust that God is working for his glory and your good. Romans 8 tells us that our good is conformity into the image of Christ. That is what is good for us. And his purpose. So trust, trust that God is working even in the most difficult of circumstances and situations. He has not been surprised by anything that has occurred to you. He sees and knows the full plan And his purpose is to display the grandeur of his glory in it. Do you know when when the people of God caused me to marvel at the greatness of our God? Do you know any time I talk with one of you or interact with one of you when when I marvel at what God is doing? It's when it's when you are content in him and in his ways. When I hear about your contentment in the Lord, regardless of where your situation is, regardless of where 
your circumstances, regardless of what you desire, when I see true, genuine contentment, I begin to marvel at the greatness of our God. Because I, I can see the willingness to set aside your own desires and your own plans for the things that, that I know, that you know, are of greater value and of greater worth. Many times it's our impatience and our discontentment that, that intervenes in these seasons of our lives, pushing us to miss how God might be working in them, how he might be leading you to trust him more today, how he might be leading you to conform your, 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 your character and your image into, the, into, into more like Christ. Just ask this simple question. How might God be leading you to trust him more today? How might he be leading you to say, here is how I would like things to change or shift, but, but I would rather be content in the center of your will. Thirdly, and lastly, ask the Lord to help you fear him. Ask the Lord to help you fear him. We fear God as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who he is. As we grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is in accordance to how he is revealed in the scriptures. And the truth of the scriptures and the revelation of who Jesus is can only come from the help of the Spirit. This is what Paul tells us that only the Spirit can help us to discern those things that are from God. So we need to ask the Lord to help us to grow in our knowledge of him so that we might properly fear him. That as we seek him in the scriptures, he might reveal more of his character, more of his attributes, more of his acts, more of his glory. Do you fear God? Do you fear God? This is a question I want you to leave with, walk with. Do I fear God? And a follow-up question is, do I know the God of the Bible of whom I should fear? 